So can you name one of the seven ancient wonders of the world? Pyramids, that's, that's really good. That is one. Guys, this was your opportunity to look next to your wife and say, Honey, sweetie, you are the only wonder in my world. Do I need to give you a minute? Be very careful you don't say, You are the only ancient wonder in my world. That, that'll get you slapped. You're right, the pyramids or the great pyramid of Giza, that's kind of like the big main one, oldest one. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which is interesting because it's the only one that we don't have ruins of. We're not exactly sure where it was, but we know it was documented as one of the wonders. The Colossus of Rhodes, the Lighthouse of Alexandria, the Mausoleum of Holocarnassus, I think I'm pronouncing that right, and Statue of Zeus, and then one called the Temple of Artemis. Now, the Temple of Artemis is the one I want to Uh, tell you about today. Here's a picture of the reconstruction of it. That is what we think it looked like. That's not the real one. That's a reconstruction today. You can go visit this one. It's kind of what it is uh, to see what it looked like. The actual ruins of it are much less impressive, Um, but that's all we got. But we know where the site of it was. And why do you need to know about the temple of Artemis? Because it was prominent in the city of of Ephesus, which is a community which a new church started by the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter that we're going to read today. And Ephesus was a bustling Greek city in, the, in, this, in this area that is sometimes called Phrygia with a P-H, Phrygia, but it was really just the Roman, uh, Roman province of Asia. It's in modern-day Turkey. And the reason you need to know about that is because I think you need to understand Artemis to understand some of the Apostle Paul's most clear and important teaching on marriage. Now, before we dive into it, I kind of want to preface it with a few things because one of the things I want to tell you is the scripture that we're going to read today has been one of the most misunderstood, one of the most misused and abused passages in all of scripture. In fact, as the week went on, and I was continuing to study my notes and prepare for today, I just began to think to myself, Carter, why in the world are you teaching on this passage? Are you trying to get emails on Monday, right? So, if you find yourself crafting an email to me in your head uh, during our time together today, I would just ask you to just kind of stick with it and just wait uh, until the end and until we get there. So, because this scripture is so clear about what God wants to teach us about marriage. And today we're talking about being married. What does it mean to be married? Uh, What would be the direction God would give us? And aren't you grateful that God gives us direction? I mean, aren't you grateful God didn't just throw us out there with different emotions and different bodies and different hormones and different ways of seeing the world and different love languages and different everything and just say, hey, good luck with it, kids. You'll figure it out. Aren't you grateful that God tells us what he wants for marriage? And here's what I think we're going to find, that what God wants for marriage is what you want for marriage. In fact, the marriage God wants for you is the marriage you deep down want. So 
this is critical, I believe, for all of us. And if you're kind of new to church or new to Jesus and you came because you wanted to hear some, something about marriage and a friend invited you and you thought, you know what, we could stand to make some improvements at home. So, so I came to this. I'm not sure where I'm at for faith. This is why this is important to, to all of you because here's what I know. If you lose at home, you lose. Right, if you gain the whole world, if you just reach the pinnacle of finances or success or your career or whatever it is that you do, but you lose at home, you lose. And none of the success and none of the money and no career will make up for failing at home. And here's the opposite of that is true, is that if you win at home, you win. Like if you win at home, if you're successful at this, at the end of your life, it will make the money and the success and the accolades so incredibly small. Because what will matter most is that you won at home with the people that you love most. And this is God's direction for how to win at home. Because I think God wants you to win at home. We want you to win at home. I want to be mountaintop to be a place where people are winning at home and having healthy marriages. So if you're here today and you're single or you're a teenager and you're thinking about you want to get married one day, I believe what we're going to talk about today are things you can look for these signs in dating. And I would highly encourage you to take what we're talking about today and and look for some of these signs. If you are here and you're just thinking, I'm done with marriage, Where, what does this have to do for me? Here's what I would ask you. Would you just pray for your brothers and sisters in the room? Because I know you've got lots of friends probably here today that are married and I, we want them to have the best marriages they can have. All right, so let's talk about why the world, this temple to Artemis is important to you. In Greek mythology, Artemis was the goddess of, she was the daughter of Zeus. She was the goddess of the hunt, the goddess of wilderness, the goddess of wild animals, the goddess of the moon. So a lot of nature stuff. But the most prominent thing was that she was the goddess of chastity. But not in what we would view as kind of like a healthy chastity, what we might teach teenagers or singles. No, she was the goddess. Of, in fact, she made a vow. Part of her story in Greek mythology is that she made a vow to never marry. And her kind of ethic, her value was that she didn't need a man and that she did not think that there was virtue in marrying and joining with a man. And she was worshipped all throughout Ephesus. Little girls grew up going to the temple of Ephesus, learning and believing that the pinnacle of their life would be if they could be like the great goddess Artemis. So her, this mindset was so thick in the culture and her influence was so thick on the culture. When the apostle Paul goes to Ephesus for the first time to begin preaching the gospel and a little community begins to form a faith. A new church begins to form and it grows and it grows and it begins to have economic impact on the city. It's an incredible story. Can you imagine that our evangelistic efforts could have an effect on commerce? That's what began happening. Because people stopped going to the temple of Artemis. And a silversmith who made his living making little idols 
of Artemis for people to go take home and put on their windowsill, he began seeing that this new way of thinking was making a dent in his business because Paul was teaching people that God was not found in idols, that God was found in the Jesus who had come to earth and had been crucified and resurrected, and the fullness of God dwelt in him, not in little silver idols made by hands. And listen to what Luke records in the book of Acts in Ephesus that this silversmith who causes an uprising says, He says it this way, there is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. It's an amazing thing. And the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the whole world will be robbed of her divine majesty. And when all the people heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Over and over again, a riot broke out. An uproar and an uprising grew. Many were detained. Most believe Paul was put in prison during this time. And it is, and wrote the letter to Ephesus. So it is within that context, with that mindset that Paul writes this letter and that he has to teach women that maybe this, this radical female independence isn't quite the way that God would have you be in marriage. But that was just one side. Because the Ephesus church didn't just have Greeks or Gentiles, as the Bible calls them, any non-Jew, and these non-Jews were Greeks. It didn't just have Greeks who had been steeped in the culture of Artemis. It also had Jews who had studied the Old Testament. And they were on the other side. Because, can we be honest for a second? Have you ever read about marriage in the Old Testament? I mean, it's not always pretty. Women are treated as property. They're bartered for land swaps and land rights. Now, sure, Genesis 1 and 2, the very beginning, offers a beautiful picture of what marriage is supposed to be when husband and man, both uh, husband and wife, are both come together as one flesh and a man will leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. That's beautiful language. You read it, marriages. But that's Genesis 1, 2. And sin enters the world in Genesis 3. And when sin entered the world, it entered relationships. And the rest of the Old Testament is littered with horrible marriage stories. Abraham lies about his wife, Sarah, and says that she's his sister just to save his own hide. And when God gives him a promise that he'll have a child through Sarah, he can't wait long enough, so has a child through a woman named Hagar, and both their maidservants. Not a model for marriage. Jacob, one of his descendants, marries two sisters but loves one more than the other. King David's courtship of Bathsheba wouldn't be exactly what we would call wholesome. When he saw a married woman across town and decided he wanted her so much that he had her husband put on the front lines to be murdered so that he could have her as his own wife. But at least his son Solomon got it right. That was a joke. Solomon had 700 wives. Can you imagine remembering all those anniversaries? 700 wives and 300 wives concubines. 
Now, I know what everybody's thinking, but what about Ruth and Boaz? We sang her song at our wedding. Now, listen, we got Ruth and Boaz, that's great. But much of the rest of the Old Testament offers some pretty twisted and messed up models for marriage. And this is why, this is why, church, this is kind of a side note for the Christians in the room. We need to be really careful about using the term biblical marriage. Because we wouldn't want someone to open it up and turn to Solomon and think that's what God wants out of marriage. Right? Just because the marriage is in the Bible doesn't mean that it's godly and holy. It might be what not to do. Right? That might be the lesson God is trying to teach us about what not to do. And so Paul is going to teach us in this about what to do, that there is a better model. So with that context, the context of the Greeks and this radical female independence and the context of the Jews who have some, some pretty bad examples of marriage and it's very patriarchal, that's the context of which Paul writes this letter and writes this teaching on marriage. Now, I want to tell you something. This scripture has been a hot button issue with marriage. In fact, it has been used as ammunition for abusive relationships in which women have been devalued and men have used some kind of macho version of Christianity to lord over their wives. And if you have ever heard it taught that way, I just want to tell you something. I'm so sorry. It's also been used as fodder for progressives on the other side who say that this is, this is an example of how the, the Bible is outdated and patriarchal and has nothing to say of marriage. I don't think either is true. I don't think either of those perspectives are true. In fact, I believe when we see this for what it is, it's not offensive. It's actually beautiful when we understand the passage in its fullness. And it has nothing to do with one having power over another it has to do with the exact opposite. It's found in Ephesians 5. And if you don't have a Bible that you're opening now or a phone, but if you want a hard copy and don't have one, please take one at our bookshelves when you leave so that you, you really need to study this. This is a really interesting section called the Household Codes where Paul teaches people in households. There's some directions for parents in here and directions for, for marriage as well. And the first verse is the most important. And sometimes this passage is taught without teaching the first verse in the section. The first verse is the most important. 21 of Ephesians 5. Submit to what? One another. Come on, come on, come on. Submit to one another. That was better. You submit to each other. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I want you to submit to one another. I want you to practice putting one another first. This is a both and, not just one submits, both submits. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And this begins a theme in this passage that is what it's all about, mutual submission. And this is a mutual submission. This is a both and. And it's not, see here when we think about submission, we think about cry, the cry-uncle game. You remember cry-uncle? Y'all remember that? If you don't remember Cry Uncle, you know, it's like with your brother or sister or your cousin or, or, or friend, and you kind of grab each other, and you're going to see who can bend each other's wrist back and you, until, you know, it's painful and somebody's wrist is about to break, and you finally cry uncle. I don't know what we have against uncles, but we cry uncle. 
And you're submitting because you're, you're giving up, you're giving in. That's not what this submission is. In fact, the Greek word for submission that Paul uses when he wrote this originally was hupotasso. And it means to arrange under, to subordinate, to be under one's control. And it was mostly used as a military term to arrange troop divisions in a military fashion under the command of a leader. It's an organizational word. Paul is saying, I want you to organize yourself under one another. I want you to have a contest for the rest of your married life for who can put each other one, number one first. So that's what it looks like. That's what mutual submission looks like. You continue every day putting each other first. I want you to organize yourself under one another. Just keep one up and keep one up. And no, no, you're, no, no, you, no, you're first. This means husbands, you put your wives first. This means wives, you put your husbands first. You know why this is so important? Because women and men are really different. Have you noticed that? Really different. And it's so easy because we're so different and we think so differently to put ourselves first. Like for instance, husbands, you thought that the rest of your marriage was going to be like your honeymoon, right? And you were so wrong. You were so wrong. Listen, y'all got to loosen up here. You were... <laughs> You were like flannel pajamas wrong, all right? Like you got back from the honeymoon, the flannel pajamas came out, and you're like, well, I like the other ones better, right? You know that for the rest of your life, it was going to be flannel pajamas because that was a little bit more like regular life. And it didn't take long, like two days from you got home from the honeymoon, to figure out that your desires are different. Your desires are different. And part of succeeding in marriage is figuring out how you can practice uh, mutual submission. In fact, here's what I believe to be true, that mutual submission is the marriage secret. Mutual submission is the hack. It is the way to do it. And you have to figure out the secret to having intimacy that is holy and godly and right for the rest of your life is figuring out how you're going to be mutually submissive. And sometimes that means you're going to submit to her desires. And sometimes you're gonna, that means you're going to submit to his desires. And if one of you always wins, it never works. Ladies, you thought that he would court you like when you were dating, when he wrote little notes and would drop by Publix and pick up a flower. You remember that? Now, when he drops by Publix to pick up a flower, it's a Pillsbury or a white lily, and he wants you to make him a cake, right? That's, and you have to learn, being mutually submissive means that you have to learn to give grace that he's not quite as romantic as you had hoped he was and that he maybe used to be. And it also means to having the wherewithal and the understanding that sometimes, guys, you really do need to go pick up a real flower. Mutual submission is the marriage secret. It's what makes it all work. It's what makes it all come together. If it isn't mutual, it doesn't work. 
Because if you don't put them number one, one day, they'll be at Panera during lunch. And it's busy. So like the drink station is crazy. And there'll be somebody there who's kind of cute who'll say, oh, no, no, you, you go first. I, I love your shoes. And it's been so long since somebody complimented their shoes. Man, I, I just made a vow a long time ago that ain't nobody going to treat Emily McKinnis better than I treat her. Right? There's not, there's not going to be somebody, and I try to work really hard because I want her to know, and I don't get it right all the time, that she is number one. It's just too important. So then Paul takes this idea, this mutual submission that is the marriage secret, and he fleshes it out specifically to each partner. And this next passage is a verse, men, that you never read to your wives. It says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. These are brand new Christians who he is saying the model for how you are to approach your husband is not what you have been taught your entire life in the temple of Artemis. The model for how you are to approach your husband is not what the culture has told you. The model for how you're to approach your husband is fact is found in how you revere the Lord. And I want you to approach your husband that way. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church, again, the picture is not in a person, not in a model of marriage. The picture is in the church. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Wives, Paul says, I want you to organize yourself, to hupotasso, to arrange yourself underneath your husband. Can you hear him speaking to this Artemis culture of extreme radical female independence who says that it's not even a part of a value or a virtue to join together with another man? And he's saying, no, no, there is extreme value. In fact, I want you to, instead of, see, instead of seeing this radical independence, I want to actually challenge you to arrange yourself under your husband. Now, here's the problem with this passage. Oftentimes, this passage is taught without verse 21, the top verse, that says submit to one another out of love. In fact, some of you didn't even know that part was in the Bible because all you've heard is this wife submit. And some of you are like, I don't, I, I don't, I, I don't like that because the other part, because listen, guys, yours is coming, okay? Ours is coming because Paul gets really specific about men here. And the other thing that has happened that has been really ugly in Christian teaching is pastors have stood in pulpits and stood on stage and they've preached these three verses without preaching what follows for the men. And I want you to know if you're ever in a Bible study or at a church where that happens, you should run because they don't work alone. These are not solitary ideas. These work together. And if it's not mutual, it, ain't, it, it, it just doesn't work. Because then listen to what Paul says to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. Paul is saying the model for marriage for you is not Abraham. The model for marriage for you is not David and it's sure not Solomon. The model for you for marriage actually isn't even in a marriage. The model for you for how you should treat your wife is Jesus. 
You should treat your wife the way Jesus treated the church. And what did Jesus do for the church? He died for it, right? Now, fellas, I believe in you. I want you to know that. I believe you. I know, I know you would take a bullet for your wife. I know you would. It won't be that easy. (laughs) Will you die to yourself every day for the rest of your life? Will you give yourself up and your wants and your desires and your way every day for the rest of your life? That is the model for a Christian husband. In fact, Paul goes on and he says this. Here's what it looks like. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle without any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Peter would later write that love covers over a multitude of sins. That's the love of Jesus. And what Paul is saying is, I want you to love your wife in such a way that you cover up a multitude of sins and mistakes. You Don't you ever talk bad about your wife in front of your buddies. Don't you ever talk about her bad habits. You present her as holy and blameless. Guys, it will crush your wife if she finds out that you're talking bad about her to your buddies. Don't you talk to your mama when your wife's not around and your mama says something and you say something and you say this to your mama. Well, mama, you know how she is. No, you present her as holy and blameless. And when she makes a mistake, you cover it up, you fix it, and you don't ever bring it up again because Jesus doesn't bring up our sins again. That's what it means to love your wife the way Christ loves the church. What he's talking about is this concept that we often call spiritual leadership. Spiritual leadership. When I, I marry couples, I do this, uh, I can make them take this survey. Uh, it's called Great Expectations. I love it. It, it, it sets expectations and make them answer it separately about who's going to do the dishes, who's going to clean the house, who's going to cook, who's going to cut the... It's great. I just sit there and watch them fight about it. It's just... <clears throat> I'm just kidding. It, great, it brings up some great conversations because it's really just about expectations. It's not right or wrong, but my favorite question of the whole survey is is this question it says who will be the spiritual leader of the home and what do you think that means what a question what a question what do you think and it's so fascinating to watch this this young guy and gal often or, or folks that are getting married again and trying to figure it out wrestle with what that means in their lives what does it mean to that what paul is saying is Men, you are called to be the spiritual leader just as Christ is the leader of the church. And spiritual leadership in the home is not about being in charge, and it is not about calling the shots, and it is not about being the man, and it is not about being the king of the castle. Spiritual leadership in the home looks like a cross, not a crown. 
Are you willing to love your wife like Christ loved the church? This echoes what Jesus said when he told his disciples right before he died. He said, you have seen those in the world who lord it over and rulers lord it over their authority and their take charge action. But then he said this, this is really fascinating, but I tell you that whoever wants to be great among you must become a servant. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And I have thought about challenging any Christian young men who stand together and get married to hold their wife's hand and look them in the eye and say, I want you to know I am marrying you not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for you for the rest of my days. But I don't know if they'll do that, right? Because that's serious business. This is what spiritual leadership is. And here's what I just really believe. I believe that every fiance and girlfriend and wife sitting in this room is dying for their husband to love them like that. And dying for their husband to lead. Guys, don't you let your wife be the one to gather up the family and get to church on Sunday morning. You be the first one up. And you say, let's everybody get up because we're going to worship. You be the one to gather the family to read a devotion. You be the one to say, we're going to learn to pray together as a family. We're going to grow spiritually as a family. What if you just did that? Ladies, let me ask you a question. How would you respond to your husband if he led like that? You see, the problem with this passage over the many years is verse 21 doesn't work. Verse 22 doesn't work without verse 25. Wives submit to your husbands does not work without a husband who won't love his wife like Christ loves the church. And they are both under the shelter of submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Because mutual submission is the marriage secret. It's the marriage secret. You and I are not unlike the Ephesians. Sometimes we let the culture tell us what marriage is supposed to look like. And sometimes we let our family traditions and history and our family tree tell us what marriage should look like. Paul says there's a better model. It's a model of mutual submission. It's a model where the secret is constantly putting one of each other, number one. But it's not always easy, is it? When uh, Emily and I, my wife, were, were dating, actually we were engaged, and uh, I mean, we had a really short engagement, and short dating and short engagement. We dated for four months, engaged for eight, married. And uh, so we were getting to know each other, and Emily did not come from, a, from an SEC football family. So this was, a, this was a big deal for her to enter my family because we were a football family. She went to North Carolina, who used to play basketball, but decided not to this year. Um, so, so I had to invite her. It's okay. I cheer for Carolina, too, with, with her, and it's, it's been bad. So we, um, but she, she had no idea this, this, like, this took over our fall, right? It took over fall Saturdays. In fact, I was such a big fan that, that when we were first, when I was in college and right out of college, I would record our games on a VCR. You remember what those were? 
if you're, if you're young, it was tape. It was crazy. Like it wasn't in a box. It was a physical tape. And I had all these. Um, and if it was a big game that we won, my buddies would come over to the house on Sunday afternoon and we'd watch it again just to make sure we won. <laughs> Anybody else do this, right? I just want to see if he throws that touchdown pass one more time. Look, doggone it. He sure did it again, right? So we were in, engaged and I was pastoring these two little country churches and uh, we lived six hours away, and I couldn't travel on the weekends, um, you know, pastoring. So she would often drive down to visit, and this was during our first fall together, so she was getting her first taste of, like, SEC Saturdays. And so we had gone all day at a big game. We won the game, and we go to church, and we get home from church, and two of my buddies are already there with some fried chicken. We're ready to watch the, the game. And this hasn't happened many times in my relationship with Emily, but she kind of went off to another room and started crying. And of course, I'm like, don't you want to come watch him throw the touchdown again, right? <laughs> and she said, yesterday was fine. It was fun. I just thought since Saturday we did that, that on Sunday, just you and I would spend time together. Because she drove six hours. Right? And I thought, you know, I don't think I want a marriage where I'm the guy on the sitcom whose buddies are always at the house. And I left those two knuckleheads at the house and went and spent time with my wife. And that was the last Sunday that the boys came over to watch the VHS. Man, I get it wrong so much, but I'm a quick learner. And what marriage is about, what mutual submission is about, is a race to put number one, each other number one over and over again. And I want to tell you something. If you have gotten this wrong, if you have gotten this wrong, the story in the story is that we serve a Savior who gave his life to present you as holy and blameless before his heavenly Father. And if you have been practicing mutual selfishness instead of mutual submission, today is a great day to start over clean, spotless, and blameless and holy before God and say, I'm going to work for the rest of my life to mutually submit to my wife, to my husband, to put her number one, to put him number one. Today could be the restart for the rest of your marriage. We're going to close with a song that we learned last week that's a simple and profound prayer. Spirit, lead me. That's the main line of the song. And maybe there's been, I don't know what's been leading your marriage, but I want to just challenge you to say, God, I want your spirit to lead our marriage. And I want to challenge couples in this room, engaged couples, married couples to come forward during this song and get on your knees before God and say today we are going to renew our commitment to put each other first 
And if your marriage has been on the brink, if you've come here and you, you've got some stuff you're working through and you've been button heads, maybe today is a realization that the reason is you've been trying to get your way, you've been trying to get your perspective, you've been trying to say what you want to say. And maybe today, February 9th, 2020, is the day that your marriage turns a corner. And men, I want to challenge you to step up, that you're the one that grabs your wife's hand, you're the one that grabs your fiance's hand, and you say, honey, we're going to come up and we're going to kneel before God because on our knees before him, we're made new and we're going to renew this thing we got with one another. Heavenly Father, thank you for a picture of love that we actually don't find in a marriage. We find it in Jesus. Thank you for teaching us what surrender and sacrifice look like through giving your son Jesus to die for us on the cross. Lord, help us to practice mutual submission to one another so that our marriages in this community, in our workplaces, in, in our in our circle of friends, in our neighborhoods would point to a sacrificial love that comes from only one place. Lord, my prayer is that marriages would be made so strong in this room that others would see Jesus in the way we love our husbands and wives. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.